Good morning, church family. Everybody's still sleeping. Amen. Good morning, church family. All right, there we go. That's good. Uh, oddly enough, there is sleeping in the text today. Can you believe that? It's almost like God knows, doesn't he? The uh, convention went well last week, despite what may or may not have been in the headlines. I made a video about it. I may send it out for you guys or post it later. Uh, just giving Sarah and some of my thoughts from it. So thanks for the prayers for Traveling Mercies. I know many of you did. And Becky's back with us today. She uh, was in the first service. A young man was baptized this morning, Case Cornett. So we're uh, excited for him and making that decision to follow the Lord in the next best steps. Baptism doesn't save you, but it is in obedience to what God has done. So, all right, let's uh, take our Bibles and look at... Luke chapter 9. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I've been told by our uh, faithful saints that are up in the sound booth this morning that they're having some problems with the video card. So the, the scripture may or may not pop up next to me. So I would uh, really uh, ask that you use your phones or use something else today in case the, the screens fail. I think our video card is starting to go out. So we'll get that fixed and replaced here soon. But just in case it is or isn't there. Uh, let me remind us of where we have been. We, we left last week with the feeding of the 5,000. And we saw what a significant that was, how significant that was in all four Gospels. And today, we're going to see Jesus Christ being revealed to the disciples. Now, uh, if you remember last week, the disciples were one category of people that were following Jesus, and the crowds sort of crashed the party around them. And the crowds, I think, represent a public populist opinion of who Jesus is. And the disciples should represent who Jesus truly is. And we're going to see that confession coming from Peter in just a moment. We're going to see Jesus affirmed in two ways in this passage. We'll see him affirmed with the lips of humanity, and then we will see God the Father affirm who Jesus is. So he's going to be affirmed and revealed in who he is twice, two different ways. Uh, so there's not really a question there uh, about that. So let's look at this in Scripture. Uh, look along with me here, Luke 9, beginning in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So he's looking, what, who do they say I am? Who, what is the popular opinion? And of course he knows the answer, but he wants to hear from them what they think. And they answered, John the Baptist. We know at this point John the Baptist has been executed based on where we are in the timeline of the gospel. Others say Elijah, the greatest prophet who had lived the Old Testament, uh, Elisha, maybe, perhaps being another one, and others, that one of the prophets who has risen. He, and then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. He strictly charged them, con commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the, uh, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, and but whoever loses his life for thy sake would save it. For who does it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. When he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father of the, and of the holy angels, but I tell you truly, 
There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountains to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray he'll write this truth on all of our hearts this morning. All of our beliefs and behavior as Christians are the result of revelation. Not the result of our opinion, not the result of our culture, although sometimes that crouches in. But the reality is we are not truly able in our wicked state to discern right and wrong, truth and error. We have to have revelation from God. We have to have it. We, left to our own devices, we will bend things to our own selfish will. And in this passage today, what we're seeing happening is a revelation of who God is, a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but just pretend with me for just a minute. Pretend with me uh, a blasphemous thing, right? Something that is blasphemy, that is completely wrong. Pretend you're God for just a minute, right? If you're God, how will you enter into humanity? How will you take a minute and show who you truly are? How are you going to do that? Would it be wise to just show up and say, hey, I'm God, I'm here, right? How would people take that without any, any kind of precursor or context? People would struggle with that. No, you would need thousands of years of prophecy. You would need thousands of years of humanity trying to get it right in the Old Testament and falling short. And you would need proclaimers like Luke to tell those who weren't there when you were physically born about what happened, to be a witness of what happened, and show in Luke 2 how you're born of a virgin. Show in these passages here how you heal the blind and how you bring back and resurrect the dead to show how you're able to take uh, five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people about how you will bless, break, and give. Someone must proclaim those things. And God's wisdom is greater still. And here we see it, right here in the, in the first section. As I said a minute ago, the, there is always the opinion of the crowd. The opinion of the crowd is the opinion of the majority of people. The opinion of the 5,000 is he's a prophet. He is John the Baptist. 
Remember, Herod was perplexed last week. And who does the crowd say Jesus is now? Well, the crowd says Jesus is, well, he's, he's a good teacher. He taught us some good morality. Or uh, he was a, a political revolutionary who got caught up in some strenuous times and it got him executed. Or uh, he, was, um, he was just a, a, a good guy who said good things and did good things and sadly was executed. But they won't affirm he's God. They won't affirm he is Christ. They won't affirm he is the Messiah because they don't truly believe that. And yet in this passage in chapter 9, there is no question. There is no question as to who Jesus Christ is. Now, Peter says this, you know, he wants to know from the disciples, who do people say I am? And Peter says, you are the what? You're the Christ. You know, a lot of people think Christ is Jesus' last name. That's not his last name. Christ is a title, right? Like president or, um, I can't think of other titles right now. So we're just going to go president, vice president, senator. You know, they think it's, you know, that, some people think it's his last name. It's a title that's been given, right? He's, he's the Messiah, He's the one they've been waiting for, right? Some people thought he was just speaking for God. I mean, it had been 400 years since there had been a, a dependable mouthpiece. That's what a prophet is. He speaks as if one who is the mouthpiece of God. And here it is, the crowd is saying, well, he's, he's a prophet. Well, he is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He is the Messiah, the one who has been prophesied, the one who will come, who will fulfill the law, and who will make a new covenant, right? Verses 21 through... 22, we see something else emerging here. Uh, he says here in verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and rejection by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed on the third day in race. Look at the verbs that Jesus uses to describe himself. Be rejected. What else does he say here? Be killed. Be raised. We are learning more in this passage about the true temptation of Christ when Satan stood before him. You may have never connected these two passages together, but let me connect them for you. What is the temptation that Satan lays out for Jesus in the wilderness? The temptation is, if you will just bow before me and praise my name, I'll give you what? I'll give you all these kingdoms. See, see Jesus, all you got to do is just bend the knee to me. No cross required, no rejection of the Pharisees and Sadducees, none of the hard stuff that we both know God the Father has planned out for you that's going to cost you your blood and it's going to cost you death. You can bypass all the suffering if you'll just accept my offer, right? Man, anytime you get an offer like that, there's always a hiss at the end, isn't there? Right? Something else that's interesting to me about this is the fact that when Jesus goes to the cross, we saw this whenever we were in Luke for Easter season back in, when was April? Easter was April, wasn't it? It was in early April. Who, who remembered him saying this in chapter 9? Chronologically, he said, I'm going to be put to death. Right? That's what he's saying here in this passage. I'm going to be killed. Did anybody really remember that? The disciples remember that? No, they didn't. Why don't the disciples remember it? Well, because of the next section of Scripture. Look at it. See, verses 21 and 22, this is about the passion of Christ. And the Greek word here for passion, it really means suffering. 
So Satan's offer to Jesus is kingdom without passion, kingdom without suffering. And the title here used for son of man, this comes from Daniel 7. He's claiming here another prophecy fulfillment. He must suffer. And in addition to that, and this is why I think the disciples forgot who he was or forgot this part that he said, ran like scattered sheep. Verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him, what's it say, church? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Hmm. That passage is easy to understand and very hard to do. Let's be honest, right? What did Mark Twain always say? I am not as concerned about the parts of the Bible I don't understand. It's the parts of the Bible I do understand that concern me, right? And this is one of those passages that is clear to everyone who reads it. Who remembers when the sons of thunder, Zebedee and James, their, their mother came to Jesus. Jesus, can my boys sit at your right hand, right? That's real tough men when your mom asks if they, they can be first in command, right? That's the kind of men we need uh, leading for Jesus. And if their mom comes and asks for them, can you, give, can you give them first spot, please, right? Well, if you want first spot in the kingdom, here's the route. The route is through the same suffering that Jesus endured. It is through the cross. You know, Romans were expert at execution. I don't know if you know this or not. They had a lot of experience in it. And when you wanted to execute somebody, you oftentimes wanted to do it, not privately, you wanted to do it very publicly. You wanted people to see, you best stay in line or the same will happen to you. So you're going to you're not going to execute people on a hill far away. I know we all love that song, right? Uh, but in, in the time of the culture, it's going to be near a cultural center. I mean, I guess it's a far away hill from where we sit in East Tennessee, but it would not have been far away from where they were sitting culturally in their day-to-day life experience. You wanted everybody to see what was happening. Here is why the disciples forgot Jesus made this prophecy about himself because here he was talking about himself and then he says, I've got to suffer rejection, I've got to be killed and I'm going to be raised and you, if you're going to follow me you're going to experience rejection and the cross just like me you're going to suffer like me and I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody and they're expressing to you a hard time and what they had to endure Uh, The best thing I can think about was whenever I had to defend my doctoral work. I had a good friend who went before me, and I I called him after it was over. I was praying for him. I said, man, how'd it go? He said, Travis, it was grueling. It was brutal. You know, like it was the most brutal uh, hour and a half of my life. And, uh, And he's going into the details and all that. And then he said something else. He said, I think yours is going to be the same way. And it's like, oh, you know, like what became the focus? His suffering wasn't as big of a deal as the suffering that I was about to face for an hour and a half. And I will say mine was suffering for an hour and a half, you know, Uh, in a similar fashion here. When you're ministering to other people and they talk about their problems and their health conditions and all that, it's really easy to nod your head and say, yeah, that's right, that's right. And then when they turn to you and say, now you're going to have this problem, right? then you kind of forget what was said ahead of time. Well, this is what's happening with the disciples here. The focus becomes on their own suffering, doesn't it? 
And look at the qualifiers here in this verse. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And there's even a clarification given here. How often, church? Daily. Every day. You have to serve others in such a way, right? Because this is what Christ is doing. He's serving the will of his Father. And he's serving us by providing a salvation that we could not attain on our own. You know, at the convention this week, one pastor said this, and this really hit home for me. Uh, everybody likes in the church, we like the idea of being a servant and serving other people until we get treated like a servant. And <laughs> when you get treated like a servant, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I don't know if I like this. I don't know if I like being on this low on the totem pole. Should it be this way, right? And this is the reality the disciples are facing. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. You know, I, I know we all like to crawl foul, and I like to call foul too whenever I'm, when I was in school and the, some of the persecutions that I faced there. And I can talk to you more about that if you're interested in it. But it's nothing like some of the missionaries I, I studied. You know, uh, a lot of times missionaries, particularly in the 1800s and the beginning of the modern mission movement after William Carey, they would pack their stuff to go onto the mission field, you know what they would pack their stuff in? Does anybody know? In their casket. Because their plan was to stay there till death. That's right. They took this verse seriously. <laughs> Take up the cross and die daily. I remember, uh, I was particularly interested in the Fijian people. I don't know what you know about Fiji now. We had some dear sweet friends that are from Fiji. Wonderful people, wonderful people. And uh, I helped with a wedding they did, so I studied the history. There are basically two people groups that are there, the sort of native native Fijians and Indian people who settled there. And a lot of Methodist missionaries helped evangelize Haiti alongside, oh, there's a lot of uh, Buddhists there as uh, and Hindu, like that influence from India. And I remember reading and did a, did a paper in seminary about the first missionaries that ever went to, uh, to Haiti. First one that was effective, there was, I think, Catholic ones that were sent there first. But the first Bible-believing, gospel-centered missionary to go was a guy named Thomas ba Baker. Has anybody ever heard of Thomas Baker before? First missionary to, he, to, to Fiji? Yeah, didn't go so well. At the time, now not now, at the time, Fijians were cannibalistic. They killed him. And the six that were working with him, seven that were working with him, and they ate him. They ate every part of him except his belt, belt buckle, and boots. And do you know why they didn't eat that part of him? They couldn't chew it. That's why they didn't eat that part of him. Take up your cross and follow me daily, right? Let's, let's go to the next verse, verse 24. So we see a revelation of Christ. We see a revelation of, of his passion, his suffering. We're seeing a revelation here of a promise. Look at verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but for whoever loses his life for my sake will save us. Save it. So Thomas Baker will get to meet him one day in heaven as he gets to recount to us how God was faithful to this promise. Uh, every time we serve others and we die a little bit, you know, that <laughs> I think there's almost like a credit that we get in heaven for that. When people give all that they have for the Lord, there is a credit here. This is how the kingdom works. It doesn't save you. Works doesn't save you. 
but it also does not go unnoticed when these things happen. God keeps lengthy records. He knows what has been given. There is a promise here. And the promise is this. If you will deny yourself, right? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about this? Who is the hardest person in your life to deny and tell them no? Who's the hardest person? It's yourself, isn't it? It's hardest to deny yourself, right? Hardest to deny yourself that extra chocolate chip cookie. Hardest to deny yourself that extra few minutes of laying on the couch when you know you've got to get up and do something. Hardest for yourself for hardest to deny yourself for not sharing the gospel when a key opportunity presented itself at the place that you work or with some dear friends. It is hardest to deny yourself. It's a battle with flesh. The promise is this. If you will deny yourself and if you will take up God's good gifts and give them out, right? This is Christ gave out uh, from us and from our brokenness. Uh, then this is what it means to, to, call, to go to our cross daily and to follow him. Now, what else do we see in this? Look at, look at verse 20, 25 here for just a second. 25. We see Jesus is not only coming the first time, he must come again. Look at this again. What does a profit a man if he gains the world and loses and forfeits himself? For whatever is whoever's ashamed of me and of my words, of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. What what is Jesus referring to here? I think Jesus is referring to the second coming. He's referring to Revelation 21. When Jesus returns this time, first time he came like a lamb, second time he comes like a lion, right? First time he comes meek and in humility, second time he comes in his glory with his heavenly angels surrounding him. First time he comes to offer salvation freely to all, second time he comes to judge based on what has been offered and what has been done with it. You know, there's a call here, this is the beautiful thing about these verses here, they deal not just with salvation. But they deal with discipleship. You say, well, what's the difference between the two? Well, the difference between the two is this. Salvation is a one-time event that we do, right? We accept Christ. It happens in a point in time. Discipleship is lifelong, isn't it? There's not a day that goes by where we're not denying self and moving forward and becoming more like Him. Uh, Salvation is given freely. You don't have to work and do anything. But discipleship, you've got to constantly deny yourself. There's a lot of work involved in discipleship and being like Jesus, right? So there's a difference here, and there is a coming judgment for all of us. Are we living a way that will honor Christ and what he has said, or are we not? And then this brings us down here. Uh, Verse 27, he makes reference to those who won't taste death. I think it's those who will see Christ raised from the grave is the reference he's making to there. That's the beginning, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, those disciples that are there. And then we move down here to verse 28. Eight days after this, this last sort of vignette here, we see Jesus here talking to them about they need to to go up to the mountain and pray. And I, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to be on top of a mountain and pray, but it is a wonderful thing. We're very blessed here that we can we can get into a little bit higher elevation fairly easily. A lot of people in this country don't enjoy that luxury that we enjoy here, uh, just living in the middle of God's creation. And he gives them some instructions here, doesn't he? Right? 
went up to the mountain to pray. Verse 29, when he was praying, uh, his face is altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Let me say a couple things about this. First of all, from what we best gather here, Jesus dressed in clothing that was not high dollar. Uh, the, the gospel writers record that he dresses himself in a seamless garment. Basically, almost like, if you could think of it in terms of like a very large, almost like a very large pillowcase with the head and the arms kind of cut out. It was nothing fancy. Okay? And here, they're seeing him sort of change and morph. They're seeing a glorification that is taking place directly in front of them. Uh, and says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, this is significant and this is important. And Moses is the lawgiver, gives the Ten Commandments, writes the first five books, records creation for us. We learn that Moses longed to look into these things, right? Hebrews tells us that, to look into the things of Jesus Christ. In many ways, I think this is sort of the culmination and the apex of Moses' existence, that he gets to come and look into the eyes of the Lamb of God, the one that he looked forward to. And Elijah, who is the greatest prophet. I mean, these are the titans of the Old Testament. If you were to talk to Jews of the day, they would have said that there's probably none greater than Moses and Elijah and Elisha. Maybe those three, they would say. But these are titans of it, right? We all remember Elijah. He's the one who called down the fire from heaven and God consumed the altar and then he put to death prophets of Baal, Baal, B-A-A-L. But then the next day he gets depression and he thinks that it's all for nothing. He just wanted to see evangelism in his day. He didn't get to see it. And then here at the transfiguration, I would love to have been in heaven when God tapped Elijah on the shoulder and said, hey, I need you to go down to earth one more time. I want you to see something. I want you to see into the eyes of the Lamb of God, the one who will not just bring revival to the Jews, but who will save all people, right? So these are two titan figures of the Old Testament here who appeared in their glory, which he was about to accomplish at where? Jerusalem, right? This is interesting that this is stuck in here like this. Where was Jesus born near, near Jerusalem when they're taking the census? Uh, sort of the start of his ministry. It, it is a place where he will go and he will face the judgment and wrath of the Pharisees of his day. But make no mistake, Jesus is nobody's victim. He lays down his life willingly, right? We see Jerusalem as a place of suffering for the early Christians. Paul said when he left Ephesus, I have set my face towards Jerusalem. The prophet has come up and took his belt and said, if you go to Jerusalem, they'll, they'll bind you. They'll They'll throw you in prison. And he said, I've set my face towards Jerusalem anyway. What's he mean when he says that? I have set my face to do God's will in spite of the suffering that will follow. Here, no doubt, I've often wondered if maybe these guys were there to strengthen his, his flesh, to help him to have the resolve to continue to do God's will. Uh, no doubt he could have done it without them. But encouragement is of significant and great importance. But there's more to it than just mere encouragement. Uh, those days... Uh, it says in 32, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Have you ever felt what it's like to be heavy with sleep? Let me ask you something. Do you struggle to fall asleep at night? Do things have you worried at nighttime? It feels like a commercial, doesn't it? Have you tried to pray in bed? If you'll try to pr- just practice this. If you'll try to pray in bed, I guarantee you Satan will help you fall asleep every time. Just about every time, right? Uh, or if you've ever, you can't fall asleep... Commit yourself to reading two or three chapters of Scripture. Satan will help you fall asleep every time. 
every time he will help you maybe this morning some satan's helping some of you fall asleep now as sleep sets in heavy on you now as i'm preaching the gospel to you satan is trying to help you be heavy with sleep says here but then they became fully awake right that heavy with sleep that's sort of lethargic right they become fully awake they understand what is happening all of a sudden this this robe that jesus has this this cheap garment that they bought at the marketplace didn't spend much on is now dazzling white his face is altered remember when moses saw the glory of god he just saw the backside of it and said he came down off the mountain and his face would glow his his appearance was altered because he saw the backside of the glory of God. And here's something like that is happening here. Jesus, I think, is somewhat emitting light and glowing. And it says here uh, that they became fully awake. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then look at 33. What happens? And as these men were parting with him, said to Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents. Peter's making a theological mistake here. Even though in the start of this section of this vignette, he proclaims that Jesus is Christ, he doesn't get it at an internal heart level yet. Wanting to build tents is wanting to put them all on the same level. Jesus in his heart and mind must have been equivalent to the lawgiver and equivalent to, in power and authority, the great prophet of God, Elijah. But he is not equivalent to them, is he? He is greater still. He is greater than the one who records the law. He is greater than the one who came down the mountain and his face shone and it scared the people. He is greater than the one who called down fire from heaven. He is greater than all the prophets who came before him. He is the Christ. He's the one who brings the new covenant and fulfills the law that Moses gave. He didn't abolish it. He fulfills it. He is greater. And that's why you see this dash here, not knowing what he said. And further to bring clarification, we hear a voice from heaven. Sounds almost like the baptism, doesn't it? Remember the baptism? This is my son on whom I'm well pleased. As he was saying these things, a cloud came them and overshadowed. Have we ever seen this before? Have we ever seen the cloud of God to, to let us know that his presence is there? Remember in the Old Testament? Where did that cloud dwell? Where was it, church? Do you remember? Right? In the Holy of Holies. It dwelled in the temple in the meeting place with the priest. So we're, we're seeing here the shadows, the types that we have seen in the Old Testament. We're familiar with this. This is the presence of God the Father surrounding them. And it says here, as that happened, uh, they were afraid. And I think I would be afraid too, wouldn't you? Like, you know, you, you'd read about this, you'd not seen it. There had been no prophetic voice for 400 years. And verse 35 says, a voice came out of the cloud. This is from the lips of God the Father. This is the highest authority in all of creation. And what does it say? It says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What do we learn from this? Well, a few things here. We must anticipate God's glory, Christ's glory. This transfiguration is about them seeing what is on the other side of suffering and death. He is worthy by far 
to endure these things for what's on the other side. And we also learn here what God's greatest requirement is. Have you ever asked that question? What is God's greatest requirement of me? What is God's greatest requirement of little boys and little girls, mommies, daddies, grandma, grandpas? What does God require of them all? It's seen right here in this closing verse. God's greatest requirement is to listen to his son. And what does the son say? Come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except there are not multiple ways to heaven, right? Not like my philosophy class taught, but we're all trying to get to the peak of the mountain, and we can all go up different ways. Well, all roads do lead to the same place except one, and that's the road that we take of Jesus Christ. Here's what we're being asked to do. We are being asked to listen to Christ. Because to listen to Christ is to obey Him. Not just hear, not just have your eardrums rattled, but to listen to what He says, take it to heart, that revelation and believe. That is what it means to obey. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word today. Lord, help us to listen. Help us to anticipate that glory. Help us to assume the cross that we must bear. Lord, the, the equivalent here, this is this is brutal type language. We, we don't want to walk to you and, and take up our nooses or our electric chairs. But God, we, we desire, all of us do, if we were honest, a kingdom without suffering, a, a glory without suffering. But what has been made clear in this passage today is that is the way of Satan, not the way of the cross, not the way of you, Lord. God, help us to accept this identity, the identity that is above all, and that is our identity in Christ. And help us always to affirm your word and what you have spoken above all else. Lord, we are challenged by these truths in this passage today. Help us to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we have heard from the Gospel of Luke. We have been challenged to live in a way that anticipates his return, in a way that calls for suffering for a future glory we will behold. What about you? Are you listening to Christ this morning? Are you being obedient to what God has called you to do? There is no better day to do that than now. Won't you do that as we sing? Please stand.